0: I'm going to invite you this morning that you would open your Bible with me to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and we've come now to the third chapter as we're studying this epistle, taking our time. And the constant theme of The epistle is joy, or how to cultivate a life of abundant joy. And in chapter 1, Paul spoke to the church of Philippi in regards to making sure that people or circumstances do not rob us of our joy. That we would understand that our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances, but our joy is in Jesus. In chapter 2 of Philippians, he says, make sure that You keep your eyes on Jesus so that people don't rob you of your joy. So that relationships and people don't rob you of your joy. And the best way of doing that is pursuing unity through humility. And now in chapter 3, as we look at it, he talks about the thief of joy that he deals with here in this chapter is the thief or that subject of things. Things. And it's so easy for us, even today, to get caught up with things, especially the things of this world. So he's teaching us here in chapter 3 how we can have a spiritual mind that's not focused on temporal things, but focused on spiritual things. Not temporal things, but spiritual things. In fact, we need to possess the spiritual mind. Why? Because today we can be tempted by both tangible things, things that you can physically possess, or intangible things that don't satisfy, and as a result, we lose our joy. Whether it's a possession, whether it's a position, we lose our joy and we become easily disappointed, easily let down or discouraged, because we're chasing after something that doesn't truly offer us joy. Now Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6:17, that God is the one who richly gives all things for us to enjoy. That you would know that that He is the giver of all things today. He is the giver of all things, and when He blesses us, it is His desire that we should enjoy them. But also in Luke chapter 12 verse 15, Jesus said, "Take heed of covetousness or of greed." For your life does not consist of the abundance of things that you possess. Luke 12, verse 15. Beware of greed, because your life does not consist of the abundance of things that you have. So that you today, as a man of God, as a woman of God, would have a spiritual mind that is focused on spiritual things. I mean, there are so many people that have the things that money can buy, but they lose the things that money cannot buy. And they become slaves of possessions or things. And what happens when you become a slave of things and possessions? You lose and forfeit the joy in your life. So in Paul's case, these things were intangible things, like religious achievements, like a feeling of self-satisfaction, of morality, of self-righteousness that he talks about here, and as he gave us this introduction in the first three verses last week, he explains that we cannot be right with God by things or by works, that works do not make you spiritual, and I want to say that again, because there are many people maybe serving in ministry, grew up in the church, or maybe you are becoming involved in the church, and as you... Do more for Christ, know this, works do not make you spiritual. You must have the right priorities. And it's our prayer today that as we've come in, we would leave with the right priorities. That that we would take heed to the warning that he has given in verse 3 of chapter 3, where he says to beware of legalism. That you think it's an outward profession, that which matters. It's not an outward profession. It's the state of your heart right now. And and he's warning them against Judaizers that say that your works make you right with God. So in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, we are of the circumcision. We are the ones that are God's people, identified as God's people. We're true followers of Christ. What are the three distinctives that he gives there? Those who worship God in the Spirit. Not just outward works, but an inward profession of the heart. You worship God in the spirit means you worship him in your heart. Those that rejoice in Christ, number two, what does it mean? That your trust, your dependence, your reliance is in Christ. And finally, number three, those that show no confidence in the flesh. Those that show no confidence, they have no confidence in an outward display of works to become right with God. So the message here that we pick up on is to worship God from the heart. Today, notice that. Write that down. Note that, that your worship should begin in the heart. It should be an inward relationship, an inward devotion, not just an outward ritual or an outward religion (laughs) because ritual and religion and tradition is empty. So we're gonna learn how to count and evaluate the things that matter most today. That today you would know these are the things that truly matter the most. Let's count them, let's evaluate them, let's assess them, and have the right priorities, have a spiritual mind. Why do we stand this morning for the reading of God's Word, and we'll begin there in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4 through verse 11. And it says this, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. And Lord, this morning we come before You. And we ask, Lord, that You would examine our hearts. You would reveal to us what is there. Lord, that we would seek You, that we would rely on You truthfully from the heart that our profession would be real. And we ask, God, that your Spirit would speak to us now so we leave evaluating the things, counting the things that matter most with the right priorities. So we pray this in Jesus' name, and together we said, Amen. You may be seated. As he begins here in these verses that we're going to look at today, we see three major things in the text. Number one, a false confidence where he gives us the testimony of where he previously, before Christ, relied on. Then a godly pursuit after having met Jesus. And then number three, a personal relationship. A personal relationship and where he abides in Christ Jesus. And we titled the message this morning, That I May Know Him. The reason why Paul is counting The reason why Paul is examining is for this ultimate goal and pursuit that I may know Him. And it begins here with the false confidence after having given the exhortation that we should have no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in your human effort to ever achieve in and of yourself to be right with God. And he says this in verse 4 Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And he's going to give them an example. He says, For those of you that think that you can attain righteousness by the confidence of your human effort, I more so. If you want to use your works as a way of getting close to God, notice this. I am the one that should have confidence in the flesh. And it's important because you look at this word where it says confidence, and we have to ask ourselves and pause, where is your confidence today? So that we don't have our confidence in the wrong place. So that as we leave, our confidence truly is in the Lord, that our confidence is not in what we have achieved. Our confidence is not in a position. Our confidence is not in our gifts, that that we don't find identity or joy in those things, because those things are very temporal. In fact, it's very arrogant to think of yourself to be spiritual because of what you do. And he's explaining this to them, that if you think you're qualified in and of yourself, in and of your tradition, what is that called? Religion. When you think that you can qualify yourself because of what you do, because of Maybe who your friends are because of your tradition that is all religious. And he's exhorting them and us even this morning that we would be real. Real where it matters the most. You know where that place is at? Real in the heart. Real in the heart. So he says if there's anyone who thinks that they may have confidence in the flesh, I more so in my own efforts. If anyone thinks that they can be qualified, to be justified by keeping of the law or these set of rules and regulations, I'm more so than any of you, more than any of the present legalistic opponents that were against Paul. Now, have you noticed that usually the people that boast that they have confidence in the flesh are the very ones that are the least qualified? Oftentimes the people that say, well, you know what, I'm qualified. I'm qualified. Uh, in and of myself, I'm morally upright in, in, in my own life. I'm attained spiritually or even educationally to be right with God are the ones that are least qualified. And what do people say today every single day? Well, I think I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a pretty good person, right? I've never killed anyone. I I, I don't steal. I try not to lie. I would say that I'm going to go to heaven. But what does the Bible say? There is none righteous no, not one. We're all guilty sinners. And in and of ourselves, we can never be right with God. We will never be justified in the sight of God apart from Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul told the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23, this legalist approach that you have on people, these, these now uh, barriers that you've created, these man-made regulations, these things, Colossians 2:23, he says this have an appearance of wisdom. This tradition you have, it has an appearance of wisdom. This rule has an appearance of wisdom. In self, notice, impose religion, but it's false humility of the neglect of the body which are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What does he tell them? That everything that you impose on people, it's a false profession of wisdom. It is false Humility, it's only an appearance outwardly, but inwardly it does you no good to be right with God. So he's explaining to them that no rituals, no ceremonies, no human achievements are any benefit for your salvation. This is what we have to notice. So that we don't put our confidence in the wrong place today. Jesus said in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. Nothing. What is it that gives you life today? The spirit of God, that you're born again because the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So what do we learn here? That we are called to rely on God for all things, to depend on him. And then he gives here three reasons for his own personal human achievement by birth. He's going to explain to them his now spiritual, religious resume and then tell them that that doesn't matter when it comes to being justified before God. And he says, notice this, if there's anyone that should have confidence in the flesh, it's not you, it would be me. And notice how he gives him these three reasons for his own personal human achievement by birth. The first one is this, found here in verse five. Circumcise the eighth day. If you want to speak about following the law and about having confidence in the law, well, notice, I was circumcised the eighth day. I lived a strict, legalistic life according to the law. In Leviticus chapter 12, what did it say that those that were born, they were called that the males would be circumcised on the eighth day. And he said, I followed the requirement, the prerequisites of the law. I was born into this. From birth, in the first eight days of my life, I was circumcised. He wasn't circumcised later on in his life as an adult. He was circumcised eight days old. Notice what he says here the second reason for his human achievement by birth. Notice what he says in verse five of the stock of Israel. He's of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. What does he say here? I'm from the tribe where Israel received the first king. Not only am I uh, here uh, native of Israel, but I'm from the special elite tribe where the nation of Israel received their first king, king Saul. And not only that, but when the nation was divided, the tribe of Benjamin was the tribe that remained loyal here to David. He's saying, I'm a pure-blooded citizen. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, I'm an heir of God's covenant. If there's anyone that should have confidence, it's myself, he's saying. A native of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe that the Lord chose to where the king, Saul, the first king of the nation of Israel, would come from. I'm a pure-blooded citizen here. Don't you know who I am? (laughs) How many times have we been confident in that and, and who we are? Has anybody ever told you that? Maybe you despise them and what do they say? Don't you know who I am? You would say, no, I don't actually. But here he's reminding them, this is who I am. In fact, it is important for us to know this, that who you are won't save you. But who you are in will. And we're called to be in Christ. The blood of your ancestors does not save you. The blood of Jesus Christ saves you. And that's exactly what he's teaching them. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, his word tells us, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. So he's explaining here three reasons of his confidence in the law and his human achievement by birth. Number one, circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the tribe of Israel, or the tribe of Benjamin in Verse 5, But number three, notice a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm also a Hebrew of Hebrews. What is he saying? I'm a real Hebrew. I didn't try to blend in with the Greeks of the time. You know, oftentimes because of persecution, the Hebrews, would what they would do, the Jews, they would try to blend in and, and not follow the Jewish tradition so that they would mix with the Greeks. And he's saying, that that was not me. In fact, I didn't try to blend with the Greeks as if I was not a Jew, I was raised in a Hebrew home by Hebrew parents, following Hebrew traditions, even the Hebrew language, even in a pagan city. I was the real deal when it came to being a now a Jewish young boy being raised and following the traditions of the law. In fact, I spoke the language. Do you remember when Paul was arrested in Rome and they were taking him up the stairs as he was bound by that Roman guard? And what did he say? Let me speak to them. I'm a Jew. And he says, I I didn't think you were a Jew. (laughs) And he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So what is he explaining here? That ritual, that rank, that race, none of these things make you right with God. That your confidence should not be in your heritage, in your rank, in your ritual, in your tradition. And after giving these three now objectives in regards to how he achieved by birth, the human law. Notice he gives three reasons by personal choice and conviction. He says, not only was I born into this, I also made a decision and a personal choice by conviction to follow the law as a man. And he gives three concernings here. In verse five, you see one, and in verse six, you see another two. Now notice these reasons that he's giving in regards to how he kept the law. Verse five, it says this, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. What was he concerning the law? It says that when it comes to the matter of the law, I was a member of the Pharisees. Now, a member of the Pharisees, to be a member of that group, it means that it demanded upon your life a strict obedience to the Jewish law. You couldn't just live any way that you wanted. On the Sabbath, you had to follow the Sabbath. The way you talk, the way you washed your hands, the way you ate, the way you dressed, They were devoted to the law, the Pharisees. In fact, they were noted to be the spiritual athletes of Judaism. Think about the elites. They were called the separated ones. Why? Because they separated themselves from the common life of day to day to give themselves over to keeping the law even to the smallest detail. But it was all an outward profession, the Pharisees. In fact, didn't Jesus call them out? He said, you Pharisees, you do everything outwardly, but inwardly, your heart doesn't honor God. Paul is saying, I was a Pharisee when it came to the law. I obeyed every single little law. I didn't uh, dismiss any of them. Notice what Jesus said as he preached to them, as he rebuked them. In Matthew 23, 23, note this. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. For those of you that are confident in your knowledge, And those of you that are confident in your self-righteousness, woe to you. And notice what he calls them, hypocrites. (laughs) You're just actors. You're pretenders. He's saying you're fake. You give an appearance pretending to be something, but you truly are not. He goes on and says this, For you pay tithe and nis and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You say, you do everything outwardly to pretend that you're spiritual, you do all the works, you follow all the ceremonies, you protect all the traditions of the Jewish law. However, when it comes to the inward requirements which have to do with justice and mercy, forgiveness and faith, you do not do these things. It's just an outward profession, but there's no inward reality of the heart. And here, this is exactly what Paul was saying. When it comes to the law, I was a Pharisee. I kept the law to the strictest degree. The second concerning, he speaks of in verse 6, he says concerning zeal now. What does he mean by zeal? Concerning passion. I was given over to the law as well. This is why, if there's anyone that should have confidence in attaining righteousness through the flesh, it should be me. Notice what he says. Concerning zeal, I had a passion for Judaism. In fact, I persecuted the church harshly. I was actively fighting against the opponents of Judaism, which were the Christians, in his own spiritual blindness. You notice how he's describing himself here? He says, when it came to zeal, notice how much zeal I had. I persecuted the church, which was the opponents of the law. Why? Because he had zeal but he had no wisdom. You know, there's a problem oftentimes when we have zeal without knowledge. You know, zeal without wisdom, what it is, it's immaturity. That you're motivated by an emotion, a a zealousness that is not driven by knowledge. In Romans 10 verse 2, it says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, notice what it says, but not according to knowledge. They have a zeal, but it's not knowledge. He was spiritually blind, and he thought he was doing right. But it was in the name of religion, in the name of works, in the name of self-righteousness. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he tells Timothy how he persecuted the church as a Pharisee. He says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who enabled me, because he counted me faithful. What did he do? He put me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer. A persecuted, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it in ignorance and in unbelief. What was it? His zeal made him spiritually blind to the truth and the reality that his life was just an outward profession, but inwardly he was far from God. So he says here, concerning the law, concerning zeal, number three, concerning Righteousness but not any kind of righteousness. He says, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Now circle the word in. Because he's saying here, my life fully followed the law in. It was in the law. And he says, I'm blameless when it comes to the law because I obeyed the law. I obeyed the tradition without fault. I achieved the highest standard of righteousness, which was accepted by people in his day, but he still fell short of God's holy standard. I mean, just think about it, being accepted by people, but being dismissed by God. Because your heart's not right. Because you, you, you are concerned more with being approved by man than being approved by God. And Paul is saying, outwardly, I've kept the law, I, I've been a success, but he didn't stop to consider the inward sins that he was committing of the hearts. As he describes, if anyone can claim to be pleasing God by the law, notice in verse 5 and in verse 6, he describes this, or be keeping the works of the flesh, it was Paul, he was more qualified than the legalist opponents that were making these claims. Now this is so important as we look at this. Because your religious credentials Your religious position, your spiritual position, does not impress God. And we have to know that. A works-based confidence will not save you. There's so many people every single week, what do they do? They come to church, but they never come to God. Because their hearts are far from the Lord. And sometimes people put their confidence in the wrong thing. Well, you know what, I'm serving at church, or... Listen, I even, I'm serving the worship ministry, or you know what, I went to Bible college, or I have my degree in theology, and you think that makes you right with God. None of those things make you right with God. You know what the Pharisee trusts in? In his self-righteousness, thinking that he's spiritual. The scribe trusts in his knowledge. And the Bible tells us this, knowledge puffs up, beloved love Edifies. It's not simply on how much you know. It's, do you truly love people? Do you truly love the Lord? Or do you trust in intellectualism? Look how smart I am. Look at the degree I have. Look how far in advance I've made myself in education. You put your confidence in a set of rules and regulations or policies, procedures, instead of trusting in the Lord. And then what started in the spirit, you know what it does? It continues in the flesh because you put your trust in those things instead of trusting in the Lord. So here he's giving an explanation that we would understand to trust in the Lord, that we would not trust in our knowledge, in our experience, in our expertise, but we would trust in the Lord. In fact, without the humility you need, your knowledge will work against you because you will trust in your knowledge. And I'm going to say that again, that you would really understand that and it would sink in your heart that without the humility that you need, your knowledge will work against you. Now he's given us this religious resume that he had, this false confidence that oftentimes we are trapped into. And then he explains here from verses 7 to verse 8, a godly pursuit. This is what we want to pursue now. And he says this in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have accounted loss for Christ. That's the godly pursuit. Think about it. But what all these things were gained to me, or this word gain, it's an accounting term which means profit. And he's going to give a contrast. A, he's going to count. Notice how he uses that word in verse 7. I count them loss for Christ. Count means to evaluate. It means to assess or to count spiritually, to separate. In fact, today, this is what we want to do. We want to count. We're going to learn to count this morning. And we're going to separate those things that are spiritually useful from those things that are temporarily worthless. Because sometimes we give attention too much to the wrong things. And we, we put our attention on the things of this world instead of living for the spiritual things that truly matter. So he says it in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, I have counted loss for Christ. He's examining his own life. He's counting. He's making an assessment. I read this week something that said, The life that is not examined is not worth living. Think about it. A life that is not examined is not worth living. Have you examined your life recently to know what you're living for truly? That your confidence is not in the things of this world, is not in what you can attain, not what you can succeed in, not what you can gain? Because here he's describing this, that once I thought all of these things that he just mentioned, he said, were valuable. I once thought that they were gained or profits. But now I've considered them lost. Notice verse 7, what he says, I've counted, assessed them as lost or worthless for Christ. He's describing this business transaction that's happened. This spiritual transaction. Of when he met Christ Jesus after he was redeemed. Notice what he says. All his religious credentials meant nothing to him anymore. Yes, he lost something, but he gained much more than what he lost. So many times what holds us back is us holding on to the things of this world. Trying to attain the things of this world. He said, these things that seem valuable, that seem important to me, they are unimportant to me now and they're worthless. Because of what Christ has done for me. Now notice that verse 7, it says, for Christ. There's the key. Because of what Christ has done for me, these things have no substance, help me in no regard when it comes to me being right with God because of what Christ has done for me. Or verse seven, for Christ. They don't mean so much to me anymore. They used to mean so much to me anymore, but now I'm seeking to please God and not myself. Now I'm not seeking to please God using these religious accolades. Do you see how he's so freed from a workspace relationship? He's saying, now I've lost all of this to gain Jesus Christ. And what does the Bible tell us in Matthew chapter 16? In order to gain, what are you going to do? have to do first is lose. <laughs> lose your life. Not try to hold on to your life in this world. What does God desire? That you would lose everything so you can gain everything. In Matthew 16, 25, he says this, for whoever desires to save his life, what is this going to happen? You're going to lose it. If you want to gain your heart, lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? Think about that. You gain everything except what matters most. And loses his own soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in glory of his Father with his angels And then he will reward each according to his works. Here, Jesus speaks right to the heart. What good is it if you gain everything you've ever wanted, but then still lost your soul? You know what Paul is saying here in verse 7? He's saying, I'm willing to pay whatever God requires. (laughs) All of these things, they don't mean anything to me anymore. Whatever the price is, whatever the cost is, he will abandon everything to follow Jesus. And it teaches us even today that we should rid ourselves of things that we're obsessed with and not allowing ourselves to be distracted so that we can truly follow Christ from the heart. And notice how he's, as he's counting or as he's comparing these things, verse 8, this is what he says, Yet indeed, I also count all things. Now he uses this word from verse 8 to verse 11, the word things. I want you to circle that every time in your Bible as that word comes up. Yet indeed, I also count all things, everything, all else worthless or loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He's saying, I I compare everything and everything else worthless compared to the excellent or the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, who is my Savior, or who is my Master, in view of this excellent knowledge of Jesus Christ, everything else is worthless. Do you see how he compares the two? And the word here, knowledge, in verse 8, it doesn't talk about an intellectual knowledge. He's saying uh, the, the knowledge he describes here is that Greek word, epignosis that we've looked at before, which means a knowledge that you personally experience. So I count everything at loss in comparison to a life that I now share with Jesus Christ. Think about what he's saying. I count everything as loss for the life that I now share in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not that those things were worthless. Some were moral, (laughs) Some were good, but compared to Christ, they were nothing. Compared to Christ, they had no type of now merit compared to the greatness of his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is exactly what he's saying in verse 8. It's almost as if Paul, what he's doing is he's looking at a balance sheet. Just think about that. And he has two columns, a profit column and a loss column. And he's making out what's valuable to me. He says, I used to have these things on the profit column when I met Christ. I put them on the loss column because they didn't mean anything to me anymore. The things that I had in the profit side for my entire life were switched over to the side of loss or worthless when I met Jesus Christ. And notice as he continues there in verse 8, because he tells us this for whom I suffered the loss of all things. I was willing to lose all things for the sake of following Jesus. Now, Paul went from all of these spiritual accomplishments to prison in Rome. He literally suffered everything. He literally suffered the loss. And you know what he's saying? It was all worth it. <laughs> it was all worth it to lose everything for Jesus because Jesus is much more valuable than everything I could have possibly accomplished in and of myself. And that's exactly what he's saying here in verse 8. I suffer the loss of all things. Notice what he's saying here. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. So not only is it a loss, notice what he says. I count them as rubbish. (laughs) You know, in a different translation, it, it would call it dung. Or I count them as trash. Or I count them as manure. You can use your imagination, what he's referring to. Everything that was a spiritual asset in my life, notice what he says, I counted this religious outward works, I counted as lost now, with a comparison of what it is to know Jesus Christ. Those, those works that we think, well, you know what, God must be really proud of me because I did this or he must be really impressed with the ministry that I have or the gifts that I have for him. Notice Isaiah 64 verse 6 reminds us that without Jesus, we are unclean. In yourself, in and of ourselves, we're unclean. Isaiah 64 6 says this, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness, everything we want to offer to God, are like filthy rags, What is it you bring your best performance to God, your best work to God, the best of what you can achieve to God? You know what it still looks like outside of Jesus or without Jesus? It's unclean. It's like a filthy rag. So he's saying you're either trusting in yourself or you're trusting in Christ Jesus that you would not trust in religion, that you would not trust in your self-righteousness. Put a marker there in Philippians 3 and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Because here you see something very important, Matthew 19, verse 16. Where we have an important lesson here where Jesus counsels the rich young ruler. Now, I don't know about you, but that term right there, that name, that description, is the recipe for disaster. Rich, young, and a ruler. And notice what happens here because this rich young ruler wanted to do the very same thing that Paul is describing here. And it says here now, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, Now, behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, circle the word do, because this is exactly how he wanted to be right with God, by what he did. We know that we're not right with God by the things that we do. It's not that God wants to find us simply doing things. He wants to know the state of our hearts. And this man thought that he can be right with God by being morally good, by the outward things that he did. God is not concerned about what you do before he looks at your hearts. And he says this, what must I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Now, Jesus calls him out. He says, I know you come with an approach of morality. With your morality, your self-righteousness. And he says, but if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus says, okay, well, I'm going to answer your question. If you want to enter eternal life by the things that you do, then you're going to have to keep the law. That is the only way to be right with God, by doing by keeping the entire law, which is impossible for us. That's why grace was given. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins, because we're all guilty of the law. And he said to them, which ones? Jesus said, okay, which ones is it, Jesus? And notice what Jesus says. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So many times we say, well, you know what? I've done all of these. I have to do lists. I have a checklist. I've checked every single category. I'm pretty good with God now. <laughs> That's what this man was saying. Because notice what he says The young man said, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Now, it's so interesting here that as you look at this, is because this man had done everything in the law, but he knew something was still lacking. You can be chasing everything and doing everything in your own strength and striving to attain and to get and to do and still be lacking. Be careful that you're not chasing those things that leave you spiritually lacking. Because this man knew that in and of himself, there was still something lacking. You know what was lacking? That he was holding on to something in his heart. And Paul is explaining that in Philippians chapter 3, that God is looking at your heart. That only as you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are you be, are able to be right with God the Father. So Jesus said in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be right with God or whole, notice what he says in verse 21, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven and come and follow me. <laughs> Jesus speaks right into his heart. He says, okay, you want to be right with God? Go sell everything that you have. I want you to give it to the poor, and then you're going to have a treasure in heaven. And then you can come and follow me. What is he saying? I want you to relinquish that which you're holding onto in your heart. I want you to relinquish and forfeit and give up and renounce the things in your heart of the world that you're still attached to, that you're still obsessed with, that you're still enamored with. Renounce those things in your heart, sell what you have, give to the poor, and then you'll find a treasure in heaven. Now, notice, where do you want your treasure to be? In this life or in the next? (laughs) You know what here Jesus discovered, what he wanted to show this young rich ruler? That in his heart, he may have been doing everything right on the outside, but in his heart, his possessions were his God. He had followed the law outwardly, but in his heart, his possessions were his God. So it said this, but the young man heard this saying. Notice he heard it, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know what he was? Sorrowful. He was sorry. (laughs) You know why he was sorry? Because he wasn't going to do it. Because he loved his possessions more than he loved following Christ. I want to ask you today, how does it look in your heart? Are you ready to count it all as loss? Are you ready to say, you know what, I'm not holding on to anything. I count it all as rubbish for the sake of following Jesus Christ, that your prayer would be, you know what, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. You can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray.